This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to the Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope that everybody is staying safe and healthy. In today's episode, Danielle and I continue our discussion about the challenges of working remotely. We are joined by Gerald Chan from Stockwoods to talk about his motivations for speaking out against anti-Asian racism, his involvement with the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers, and his great recent result from the Ontario Court of Appeal in Adler. We will wrap up with some quick fire advocacy tips from Danielle on cross-examining police officers. Hope you like it. How are you finding moving to a fully remote workplace? Like, what are you doing? I think my my kind of wish for my firm and for the other um, lawyers in our in our practice is that this challenge that is just so trying will just make us tougher and stronger, more resilient. And um, you know, I think it's also important to remember that we're healthy and uh, when we kind of tip into uh, periods of despair, self-loathing, <laughs> uh, to just try to remember how much worse it could be and how privileged we are to have our health. So, um, you know, obviously I've been doing a lot of uh, reflecting um, I haven't been talking to a lot of people, Lisa. So <laughs> this is the Danielle confessional right now. <laughs> this is it. This is it. So, you know, that, that's what I've been doing. How, how are you doing? I mean, I really do feel like I'm playing quarantine on easy mode right now. Cause I don't have any kids. I don't even have a pet cause my partner is so allergic to all animals. So like we have, we have a pretty, we rent a pretty big space. We have a, an office each. So, you know, we're, we're managing the weird realities of both of us working from home and trying to respect each other's boundaries and he in particular is much busier than I am but I think that like for me my home environment is pretty good all things considered and I don't have uh, some of the obligations that other people have so I I feel very lucky right now Um, my house is mostly quiet and I can concentrate subject to my own incredible ability to find ways to distract myself by suddenly becoming a passionate gardener or rearranging the entire fucking kitchen or whatever the hell I've up up to recently. Um, But no, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is realizing how much I, like, I think of myself as getting more introverted as I get older, but I've realized it's a total lie. Like, I miss people so much. And I don't, I realize how social our jobs can be. Just being in court, shooting the shit with other lawyers, talking to my fantastic colleagues at work, like we, we miss each other. And my, my firm has been doing a weekly uh, lunch over Zoom where I don't think anyone, I think maybe Anna Maria was eating something once, but we're not, it's not really a lunch. We're all just kind of hanging out and talking to each other because it's just so nice to be able to get together again and catch up. We're not, it's not really even a work thing. It's more of just like an hour of social time where we can touch base, make sure everybody's good. Um, so it's, that's been kind of keeping me sane is all of these, all of these video calls that honestly, three weeks ago, I would have told you if I could never be on a video call in my life, I would be a happier person because I hate it. You know, this false exercise of having to stare at a screen and not quite look in somebody's eyes because the camera's up there. 
but now it is like your lifeline to some kind of social interaction. Um, and I think I'm slowly normalizing my client relationships. All of my clients have actually been fantastic. I've called them all and said, look, nothing's happening theoretically, but in, you know, I, I'm trying to work with crowns sort of behind the court scenes and try to work out some situations for you. And they've all been very understanding. Um, I think everybody gets that this is really a break from the norm and, uh, and everyone's being, everyone's been pretty great. Um, I have discovered some weird snags, like I got a new client. I'm obviously going to, you know, doing client identification and having them drop off a check or things like that, you know, where, yeah. where are they doing that? I don't really have anybody in my office to receive things right now, most of the time. So anyway, it's just been a bit of a challenge figuring out the logistics of how to maintain a practice when I don't really want to tell clients to like rock up to my front porch at my home. So, um, I think it's still working out the kinks, but, but, you know, I feel pretty lucky right now, much like you. What are yeah, you doing to keep the, the firm a firm? Well, you know, we have um, uh, a lot of lawyers uh, and we've got a civil team and a criminal team. So we right. have partners meetings regularly, uh, team meetings regularly, and then all lawyer meetings uh, regularly. So we're, we're meeting almost every day mm -hmm. uh, by Zoom. And that has been critical, I think, in um, kind of maintaining the culture of the firm and uh, appropriate workflow and, and, and our sanity. Um, and, you know, I think that all the firms are, you know, ec doing this exercise on a, on a micro level of what the courts have been doing. And, yeah. and some of us were more prepared than others to move to a digital world. And um, that has been a challenge. I know uh, across Ontario, for firms big and small. And, um, and I, you know, of course the silver lining is uh, that this infrastructure will survive the pandemic. So that we'll have it uh, go forward, which um, we've all been uh, hoping for and wrestling with for, for some time. And we just kind of pressed fast forward and here we are. So, you know, that, that's great. But the, the, you know, the biggest challenge and the lowest point uh, for me thus far was last week when a client of mine had to step into custody. Oh. And, um, you know, I don't have a lot of clients in custody um, uh, for a variety of reasons that are boring and not worth talking about. Uh, but this particular client had to surrender uh, before the release of his judgment from the Court of Appeal. And, uh, and so he stepped into custody and he has, uh, though we were partially successful on, um, one of the grounds, he still has time to serve. And so, um, I'm really scared for him, you know, yeah. and I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to figure out next steps. Um, uh, but it, it was, uh, incredibly difficult. Uh, he's someone with chronic health conditions. Um, and he surrendered to a jail where there are no uh, cases reported thus far. So that is some comfort. But uh, I, you know, I think that all the criminal lawyers across the country are just probably having a hard time sleeping like I am thinking about all the people in custody just sitting there. Um, and, 
and all, I know that all of us are, are trying to figure out ways we can assist our clients um, who find themselves in that terrible predicament. So um, it's, it's so tough. I had an, I had an 80 year old client at the South um, and getting him out was one of the most sort of, I think, mental health improvements in my life, the biggest, because I was, I realized I was so worried about him because he's in such a high risk category, 80 years old at the South where there are confirmed cases. Um, but he's home now and he's social isolating and he seems good. So that's great. Yeah. So that was, I mean, that was, and that was another sort of like crown being incredibly good. All yeah. the years involved being fantastic. So it really was sort of a team effort to get him home. And I think everybody, nobody wanted to be responsible for this guy sitting in jail. Um, so I'm, I'm just so glad that it, it's so tough when they go into custody and you feel so good when they get out, but it's, everything is so much more acute now because of the risk of health. So I don't know. I guess we're doing what we can, right? Yeah. I wish there was a more systemic approach to the problem and that it wasn't, it didn't feel like it fell completely on us to be working out patchwork solutions, individualized solutions, client by client. Um, you know, obviously I think there's a better way to, to go about this. Um, and, you know, I've been disappointed uh, in the way it's been uh, handled, uh, I would say, by various stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So I think in addition to my uh, despair on this issue, I've got a, a bit of rage, Lisa, yeah. a, little bit, a little bit of rage this morning. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm just spilling all my beans today. <laughs> No, it's it's a weird time. I don't know. I think everything is harder right now, and it, you do feel really helpless sometimes, especially when you can't go to the courthouse and try to like make things happen. And yeah, relying on phone calls and people's like I was trying to get somebody on the phone at Central East for three days, and in fairness, they've been great subsequently and have now facilitated access. But it was just like I can't contact my client. I can't get instructions. For yeah, God, yeah. like, please, someone just put this man on the phone. It's, you're driving yeah. me insane. And I can't just go there and be like, give me a professional visit. So I don't know. But I guess we're all working on it. Indigenous people are the most overrepresented population in Canada's criminal justice system. Their experiences within the system are interwoven with issues of colonialism and discrimination. Indigenous People and the Criminal Justice System, a Practitioner's Handbook by Jonathan Rudin provides a practical review of leading case law and day-to-day -day considerations for practitioners working with Indigenous clients. The winner of the 2019 Walter Owen Book Prize, this book goes into detail on major inquiries and cases, Indigenous courts, Aboriginal justice programs, and the evolution of Gladue principles. Learn more and order your copy at imon.ca slash indigenous. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off. Just visit emon.ca slash indigenous and enter code lawyers lounge at checkout. We're very lucky to be joined today by Gerald Chan, a partner at Stockwoods. Gerald has a fantastic criminal and constitutional law practice and is the current president of the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers. Thanks so much for being with us, Gerald. Thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this ever since I heard uh, episode one of your podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much. In the trailer? Probably before that. Yeah. Uh -huh. We, we yeah. were trying to get you on here before the world ended, but you were too busy and now you have nowhere to go. So we were able to trap you for this. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for making the time. 
I was, I was preoccupied, preoccupied with concerns about the world ending, but now that it's come to pass, it, uh, <laughs> got a little bit more time on my hands. Why not do a podcast? Yeah. So Gerald, uh, most of us have been, uh, totally paralyzed by the crisis, uh, sitting and doing not a hell of a lot. You on the other hand have been very busy since COVID struck and, uh, we wanted to talk to you about a number of, of things. Uh, but the, the thing that, that really struck me uh, from maybe a couple of weeks ago now was your, your op-ed in the Toronto Star uh, titled The Virus of Anti-Asian Prejudice. And, and, you know, I thought it was a beautiful piece of writing uh, on a, a terrible topic, but maybe you can kind of just take us through what uh, spurred you to, to write. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I had been getting increasingly concerned, I think, since the first reports uh, of COVID-19 surfaced in Toronto back in late January, early February. Um, and initially, I had seen, you know, reports of people saying we have to stay away from Chinatown or we have to stay away from Chinese restaurants. Um, uh, and it, it dug up a lot of old and somewhat painful memories from the SARS epidemic in the early 2000s. I was a lot younger then, so I, I wasn't paying as close attention as I am now. But I remember even back then, uh, the anti-Asian and anti-Chinese Canadian community prejudice that flared up because of this notion that, you know, this uh, epidemic is Chinese in nature, and therefore we have to avoid things that are Chinese, like Chinese restaurants, like Chinatown, if we don't want to get sick. Um, and it just it conjures up a lot of the um, uh, images and notions of uh, Chinese people being foreign and infectious, which really, you know, you can, you can go all the way back to the Chinese Exclusion Act and, uh, uh, you know, immigration policies um, decades and decades ago to find the roots of it. But I think it, to see it flare up again um, got me pretty concerned a couple of months ago. And then I, you know, then it sort of disappeared from my consciousness for a little bit. Um, and resurfaced when I started reading more and more reports of not just subtle anti-Asian prejudice, but you know, blatant and in many cases, many cases, violent acts of anti-Asian racism in the United States, but not just in the United States, also in Canada. Um, I saw more reports in the media. We started hearing more reports through the community organizations that FACL works with. Um, and so, you know, it, it uh, I mean, I feel like I have a personal stake in this right it's not just um myself that's affected it's my when i think about my son growing up uh here um when i think about family members uh who live throughout the city and in other parts of the country um it, it becomes uh, not just a social concern although it certainly is that but it also became uh, somewhat personal for me and so i felt the need to speak out and to call attention to the problem uh, anti-Asian prejudice and racism is not really something that for, I think, a variety of reasons is talked about all that much, uh, oftentimes. Um, I think there's more of a conversation going on now amid the, the COVID-19 pandemic, and I think that's a good thing. Um, because I think otherwise we can fall into this trap of not really thinking that it's much of an issue or, or much of a problem. Um, and when it does occur, sort of writing it off as isolated one-off incidents that aren't something that we have to worry about on a, on a broader systemic nature. So that's what really spurred me to, to try to write something on this. It, it, the process of writing it was surprisingly 
uh, more challenging than I thought it would be just because I think in part because it was personal. Um, mm -hmm. It was a struggle mm -hmm. for me, I found, to find the right words to express both what I was feeling and uh, what I saw others in the community, community experiencing. Um, and so not sure I, I fully got there, and, uh, but uh, uh, if I can even go some distance toward calling more attention to the problem uh, and raising more awareness about it, I think that that's, uh, I'm happy that I wrote the piece. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think we talk a lot about, uh, particularly I'd say anti-Asian racism in, in general in society, but we also don't talk about it very much in the legal profession outside of groups like FACL that are working to advance um, the interests of Asian Canadian lawyers. I'm just, I'm curious as to what drew you to get involved with FACL? You're obviously the president of the organization now. And what challenges do you think as a profession we are still not doing a great job on uh, within your space or related issues? Sure. I mean, I think we've made a huge amount of progress in the last several years. When I first started practicing, which doesn't feel like very long ago, I guess it was, you know, 13 years ago now, I made a conscious effort to avoid organizations like FACL. Mm -hmm. uh, FACL wasn't that big at the time anyways, but I did have this notion in my head that I didn't want to be um, marginalized. I didn't want to be viewed as, you know, the Asian lawyer who services the clients in the Asian community and does nothing else. And when I think back on it now that I have, you know, a more secure place in the profession and that I have more um, confidence in my place in the profession, it seems silly in hindsight, but those feelings I think were very real at the time. And I see that, um, I see those feelings manifesting themselves in a lot of younger Asian Canadian lawyers, um, not wanting to be pigeonholed, not wanting to be um, viewed as an Asian Canadian lawyer, but just a good lawyer. Um, and so I, I sort of shied away from FACL and other organizations like that early on in my career. And it didn't really start to change until I was invited to speak at a FACL conference uh, on a panel just about criminal constitutional law, which is all I was uh, really worried about back then. And I went to the conference and it was incredibly well organized. There was a lot of buy-in from the, you know, you know, for lack of a better term, mainstream parts of the profession, um, judges and, and politicians and law professors and ventures were um, uh, attending to signal their support for this community. And what was at that event where I think it, it struck me that there is real power in community in sharing experiences with those who had similar upbringings, who had similar experiences, similar fears and concerns coming uh, up in the profession. Um, and so that, it really resonated with me, that event, and sort of motivated me to get more involved in the organization. The other piece of it was FACL at the time even, and I think has increasingly become uh, an organization concerned with advocacy. And that was important to me. I didn't want to join an organization um, and have it be all about, you know, networking. As important as I think networking can be for a number of reasons, but I, if I was going to join an organization, I wanted there to be a real advocacy focus to the work that it was doing, uh, because I think that's how it maintains its credibility and relevance in the broader profession and in the broader community. So um, that's it had that going for it at the time, and we've tried to make advocacy really a central part of the focus of what FACL does. Right, and you guys have intervened on a, I mean, you guys, sorry, FACL has intervened on a number of uh, high-profile cases, um, thinking about the Lee decision last year, and you were personally involved in that case. What do you view as 
faculty's role or your role as counsel for faculty when you're intervening in a case and what interests are you trying to advance? Sure. I, so I think we're, we're trying to stay focused on our central mandate, which is to promote equity, justice, and opportunity. Um, for Asian Canadians, sure, for Asian Canadian professionals and lawyers, but not just for Asian Canadians, I think for, for all people. And so, you know, Lee was a case, um, and we had never intervened in a court case before. It was uh, a, a big goal of ours. Um, just now, Justice Michael Doy was president uh, before me, uh, and he made it a central part of his focus to get faculty more involved in doing advocacy work in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. We had focused a lot of our advocacy efforts uh, on submissions to the Law Society, on submissions to Parliament, um, uh, uh, on, on sort of you know press releases and social media statements and the like, but hadn't done much courtroom work until Lee came. And it, it really, in many ways, was a perfect case, I think, for us to get involved in. Um, the accused uh, was an Asian Canadian, uh, and the issue going up to the Supreme Court was uh, one of, or at least one of the issues was, how should race factor into the constitutional analysis when we're trying to figure out whether somebody was detained, whether somebody felt like they had a reason, you know, whether a reasonable person in their shoes felt like they could just walk away from police, bearing in mind the somewhat, you know, fraught uh, history between racialized communities and law enforcement, uh, bearing in mind the fact that uh, racialized communities are over-policed, and how does that history affect uh, you know, how we think about whether a reasonable person would believe that they could simply walk away from a police encounter. So we saw that case come up and, and saw an opportunity to get the court to expand the lens through which it was viewing the detention issue. Um, you know, 10 years ago in Grant, the court had said that the visible minority status factor of the accused is a relevant factor to think about and to consider in deciding whether someone is detained. And we really wanted to get the court to flesh that out more and to give more meaning to, okay, you know, how does race fit into the analysis? Why does race fit into the analysis? Um, and how can counsel litigate these issues uh, going forward? So we made that the focus of our submissions and, you know, we were very happy to get the uh, majority judgment in that case because Justices Brown and Martin, I think did a fabulous job really fleshing out uh, that part of the analysis and explaining why race matters and how counsel can uh, make these arguments going forward at the trial level. That, that's really helpful, Gerald. And I, I, you know, I, I commend you for your candor describing your, your, your reluctance to become um, kind of involved with um, these community advocacy projects early in your career. And I think that'll resonate for a lot of lawyers, a lot of younger lawyers and you know, it's something that I that uh, I have told younger lawyers to to not feel badly about in in the beginning of their practice if they don't immediately pick up uh, a community project or a cause, and if they're focusing kind of exclusively on developing um, their practice and their skill, um, because I do think that that is uh, an okay path to take. Um, and that it's when you're feeling a bit more comfortable that you can step into that role. And, you know, and really when, when you become a leader at the bar, uh, and, and to my mind, you are, Gerald, th that's when your voice is the most impactful in any event. So uh, 
I, I have to say, though, I'm impressed to see that so many younger members of our, our bar uh, take up um, community projects, advocacy projects, uh, much earlier in the career, their careers than we did, Gerald. And, and I don't know if that's a generational thing, uh, but it's really cool and impressive to see. They seem, there seems to be less of this struggle between their identity as advocates for individual clients and their identity uh, as advocates in the community uh, writ large. No, I, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, your, your force burn, I think, is, is so important. Like, not everybody has to be a community activist or to, to think about that or to spend all their time doing that from the outset of their careers. I think there is a lot to be said, you know, not that there's one right way to do it because I don't think there is, but I think one of the benefits of my reluctance uh, to get involved in organizations like FACL early on, I think is, is exactly what you said that I was able to spend more of my time just, you know, working on learning how to become a good lawyer and building up a practice and building up a reputation and a profile just being a criminal and constitutional lawyer. And, um, you know, I don't know how I would have done it uh, from the start if I could redo everything, but that's how it played out. And it did have the effect of, I think, giving me a certain platform when I decided to get more involved in an organization like FACL. Um, but at the same time, I think one of the one of the goals I have for FACL, um, and it's not just FACL, there's so many other wonderful community organizations out there. But one of the goals I have for FACL is to, um, you know, give a space to younger lawyers who want to get involved in this type yeah. of work from the outset of their careers, to give them the opportunities to do it, to give them the confidence that they can do it without, um, you know, marginalizing themselves, without being pigeonholed, without having to sacrifice, you know, uh, just being known as a good lawyer. Um, yeah. Uh, to, to give them that platform, give them that space and give them that opportunity. Um, because I think there is a lot of, you know, certainly in my experience, I think the, I think the fear was the more I, I drew attention to and focused on the, you know, Asian part of the Asian Canadian or the Chinese part of the Chinese Canadian, mm -hmm. the more I would be viewed uh, uh, as exclusively that. Um, and the more I would give up the Canadian part of my identity, which is not the way it should be, uh, but it is, it is certainly the burden that I felt uh, early on in my career. So a faculty can, uh, you know, provide a space for uh, younger lawyers and young and law students who are coming up in the profession to, to feel more secure in their place in the profession while doing this community work. I think that that'd be a great thing. And to, and to showcase the mentors in their midst, right? And, and I think the identity piece is, is so important. Uh, the representation piece is so important. And, you know, I often uh, tell Marie this, you know, all the time that so much of the good that she does for the profession, um, she does in just existing, you know, um, for other women uh, in in uh, my shoes and Lisa's shoes, she's just she just by being there um, it, it is a beacon for other women and other racialized women uh, in for the entire country. And I and I think um, you know casting a spotlight on more racialized leaders in in our profession is is always a good thing. Yeah, no, I I think that's I think that's so 
true. Um, in the case of Marie and, and you know, uh, other lawyers before her, like Marlis Edward, et cetera, for, yeah. for women, um, it's one of the things we try to do at FACL is to uh, highlight the successes and recognize the achievements of, uh, you know, senior racialized lawyers and judges. So we, we gave Justice Sean Akatsuru the Lifetime Achievement Award at our gala this year, which was a really special moment for the organization and, and for me personally, because I hold him in very high regard. But I think, I think that's important, not just to recognize all the great work he's done, but to also inspire the younger members of the profession uh, and the younger members of faculty that, look, you know, this, is, this is an example uh, to what you can aspire. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because I've been involved in a number of women's committees within the Criminal Lawyers Association and other organizations. And one of the pieces of feedback that we often get is there's this tendency to believe that sort of special interest or special segments of society groups are about griping and about talking about the hardships and the barriers. And, and all of that stuff is real and I think does need to be discussed and there is a forum for it. But more and more, I think people want to be celebrating successes and saying like this person is a badass and has done really cool stuff and has great cases and has an amazing career and happens to be a woman and happens to be an asian man happens to be a whatever and that you know that that is a positive thing for the whole community and that's a positive thing especially for younger members looking up to potential mentors it doesn't have you can, you can do both basically is what i i have been trying to find that balance between recognizing legitimate hardships and challenges and talking about them and providing a safe space, but not being all doom and gloom and negativity and breaking down barriers. Some of it is recognizing when you have wins and celebrating that as well. So I think, you know, that is a, I think there's got to be both in any of these kinds of organizations, right? No, I think that's right. And it, that, that's, I think, important as a matter of tone. And it's also, you know, it, it underscores that that none of us, I mean, we're all individuals uh, and we can't be boxed in in any way, right? I mean, we are all informed by the experiences we've had uh, as men, as women, as racialized lawyers, uh, as non-racialized lawyers, but that doesn't, those experiences don't in any way limit what we can do in the profession and limit the paths yeah. we can take because there's so many different things you can do. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's going to be a lag between you know, our bar is going to become more diverse before the bench does. And I do think there's also massive advocacy advantages um, to be gained uh, through these organizations, right? Because we've got to figure out how we're going to advocate for our clients who come from all walks of life mm -hmm. and uh, are, are very often racialized. Like how, how do we get through to a court that, you know, race is an issue in policing, um, it, you know, that we have to make that argument over and over again, like it's Groundhog Day, um, can be exhausting. And, you know, the work that Fackle's doing um, and, and, and the work that was realized in Lee is so important, um, not just for the profession, but for, for everyday members of the community. Yeah, and, and, there's, a, and there's a, you know, there's a great, knock-on effect to all this, right? I mean, one of the things we drew on a lot in, in Lee at the Supreme Court was the Tulloch uh, report uh, that, Danielle, I know you, you played such a big role in. And to have the Tulloch report make the findings that it did about certain communities being over-policed, being disproportionately policed in a negative way, um, to be able to put that before the Supreme Court of Canada, 
that played a huge role in, yeah. in the way that they wrote their judgment to the point where they said, look, we're, we're at a place where we can take judicial notice um, right. of this. And sure, counsel go ahead and supplement that with social science evidence uh, and other um, uh, inqu public inquiry reports. But this is not something that we need to hear testimonial you know, evidence on in every single case. We're past that point. Right. Uh, the other thing that happened during this uh, pandemic is you had a big win at the Court of Appeal, Gerald. You want to you want to tell our listeners about that? Sure. It, uh, I wasn't expecting a, a judgment as uh, as soon as we got one, but fortunately, we we got a judgment uh, in a case called Adler about a month or so after we argued it, and uh, it was all about twenty four two. Um, it was all about exclusion of evidence. It was a, a, a unique case in many ways, but there were a number of fairly serious charter breaches. I mean, you often think of the body, the home, uh, and your personal electronic devices as three of the areas in which you have the greatest expectation of privacy. And this was a case where all three of those areas were intruded uh, upon in a very serious way. So you had you know, a strip search that was unlawful, a bedpan vigil uh, that was unlawful. You had, for the body, you had uh, uh, entry into the home at, during the nighttime, which was warrantless. You had uh, uh, entry into the home later on based on an invalid telewarrant. And then you also had uh, searches of electronic, personal electronic devices uh, that was not properly authorized by a warrant. So you had a litany of charter breaches uh, at trial, however, the trial judge granted somewhat of a, you know, halfway house remedy. He declined to exclude the evidence under 24-2 and instead stayed some of the charges, um, mm -hmm. but not all of the charges. So this was a case where the charges, in, you know, included voyeurism and child possession of child pornography, sexual assault, uh, and the less serious charges, uh, namely the, the counts of voyeurism, were stayed. But the evidence, all of the evidence, uh, was admitted on the more serious offenses. And so our argument before the Court of Appeal was, you know, really came down to the proposition that when you've got um, so many charter breaches that are this serious and that are all interconnected, um, where really, you know, one breach led to the next and that led to the next, and they were all mutually aggravating, that in these circumstances, a partial remedy, like staying some of the charges, is just not enough. Mm. And exclusion of evidence is not about compensating the accused. It's not about punishing the police. It's simply about the court saying that we're not going to, uh, we can't condone what happened here. And we have to disassociate the courts from what happened. And the only way to do so is by excluding all of the evidence that was tainted uh, by this you know, investigation. And so that was the pitch we made to the Court of Appeal. And happily for our client, uh, they ultimately agreed and uh, uh, issued a fairly strong judgment, I think, uh, on exclusion of evidence law uh, uh, more broadly uh, beyond the, the victory to, you know, for our client. I wanted to ask you about one point of the judgment, because one of my biggest frustrations in 24-2 cases is this. And I know that there's case law saying you shouldn't do this, but you see it all the time. I mean, the absence of bad faith being effectively tantamount to good faith under the sort of three-pronged analysis. Right. Uh, and I know that trial counsel in this case tried to elicit uh, some additional evidence from the officer that might have made out a better case to be able to show bad faith. Um, right. and, and it seems like a lot of judges do shut down efforts to, especially in search warrant cases, efforts to elicit evidence that might speak purely to 
24-2 and not so much to the Section 8 analysis. And I just wonder what you think we can take away from the Adler decision in terms of moving the ball forward on those issues. Yeah, there's a great discussion in there by Justice Nordheimer on uh, the, what uh, he characterizes improper interventions by the trial judge uh, into trial counsel's cross-examination of the officers. So trial counsel was trying to cross-examine the officers on what they, what their knowledge of the law was when it came to the, the breaches that were committed. Did they understand what the applicable legal tests were? Um, what were they thinking when they, you know, when they committed those breaches? And I think you're right. We do see on occasion uh, defense counsel trying to ask those questions and the crowns objecting or trial judges uh, intervening and saying, well, you know, th that's, that's a matter of law or that's a matter for argument. Uh, that's not something that uh, you need to ask the officers about. And this case, I think, makes it clear that that is a proper line of questioning. And it has to be a proper line of questioning. Um, you know, this notion that, that the absence of, of bad faith is not good faith means that you've got a huge area in between those two poles uh, in which to situate a charter breach for the purposes of 24-2. And we can only, as counsel, make effective arguments about where to place the breaches on that spectrum if we've got evidence from the officers as to what they understood the law to be at the time. Um, Lee, I think, is a great decision uh, on that, just to reach back to Lee for a moment, because you know, there the trial judge found that there was no racial profiling in, in terms of the police interaction with Mr. Lee and his friends at trial. And that ended up playing a big role under the 24-2 um, uh, analysis. Um, but at the Supreme Court level, the court said, well, the fact that there was no racial profiling, all that that means is that there was no bad faith. That doesn't mean the breach isn't serious. We have to look at, did the police, uh, were they ignorant of well-settled law? And if they were, then that's a serious breach, regardless of whether they deliberately or intentionally set out to violate the charter. And so if we're going to have to make these arguments about whether they were ignorant of well-settled law, we have to be able to cross-examine them on what they understood the law to be at the time. Uh, and so hopefully, you know, this decision will uh, make it clear to uh, all counsel and to the trial judges that this is a line of questioning that should be pursued and should be allowed. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think it's, it's great to see such a clear statement on that issue. And hopefully there'll be less fighting with trial judges over this in future, because it's always one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy is having to justify, justify it when you're trying to get the evidence in. And then later in submissions, they go, oh, counsel, there's no evidence of that. And you're like, come on, you, yeah. you made me this way. <laughs> you can't have it both ways. Exactly. Um, um, I think I think that's all we have for you, Gerald. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. Um, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for thanks for having me, and thanks for you know doing this podcast. It uh, gives me something to, to to entertain myself with and to keep myself well informed with, during the pandemic and well beyond that. I'm sure. <laughs> well, please please keep listening after there's no longer a gaping hole in your life where your you know job and extracurricular activities used to live. <laughs> well, I can, when, when, when I can finally start commuting to work and to court again, this will, be, this will be the top of my playlist for that as well. Oh, well, that's great. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Gerald. Looking for concise guidance on practical and procedural aspects of criminal law? How about resources that reflect both Crown and defense perspectives? Iman's award-winning criminal law series with general editors Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli offer clear and detailed guidance on the most challenging areas of criminal practice. Learn more about Iman's criminal law series at iman.ca slash lawyersloungecriminal. For our listeners, Iman is offering 10% off. Just visit iman.ca 
Lawyers Lounge Criminal and enter code Lawyers Lounge at checkout. All right, so Danielle, we we uh, we've done a lot of advocacy quickfire talking about sort of general practice tips or credibility issues, but let's get into the nitty gritty of actually in the courtroom. So, do you have any tips for you know counsel who are cross examining police officers, particularly mindful of a charter application? Yeah, well, just hearing from Gerald about the Adler case uh, really. Uh, kind of helps in in terms of focusing the mind on the task of a lawyer cross-examining an officer in a charter application. And I think that there are a few uh, tips that I want to impart on this topic. The first is that the the general rules of cross-examination apply to police officers. I think sometimes uh, we think that the the rules for crossing civilians and the rules for crossing police are different and they are not in my view and in particular what i see when i review transcripts is counsel failing to box in their police witness uh, in the way they would a civilian witness and the way you box in a police officer is even tighter than you would box in a civilian because officers unlike civilians have a statutory and common law duty to maintain notes and so uh, everything that they did and observed uh, in the case should be recorded in their notes. And you should get them to agree to that before moving on to the rest of your cross-examination. And so I think that's just a fundamental point to keep in mind. Uh, and you know, there, there are excellent transcripts available from excellent advocates, including Michael Edelson, who, who I think is uh, the, a real star at this particular, well, at a lot of things, but uh, also at this, at this task. The other piece that I would uh, uh, remind counsel to, to look into is uh, to remember the grant analysis before you bring it, begin your, your cross-examination and to have a theory going in in terms of what you want to say about the police conduct at the end when you get to your submission on on the grant analysis. And one thing to remember, and this really isn't a cross point, it's more of a disclosure point, is to ask in a disclosure request for the standing orders, they're called standing orders or policy on the particular issue. And if the police conduct falls in line with the policy, or runs contrary to the policy, that will inform whether or not your theory is the conduct was systemic or not. You know, is this officer behaving in the way his, his police service agency uh, trained him to behave and instructed him to behave? Or is this, is this a rogue one-off situation? Um, and so to, you need to kind of have the full picture before you pick a, a horse. And asking for those policies and standing orders is a big part of that. And so I really commend that uh, disclosure request to counsel out there. I think, I think that's great advice because I, I mean, that, that was some of the best advice I got when I first started, um, started practicing, which is just remember that no police behavior and no police decision making exists in a vacuum. There is always like they, they don't just they're doing a job, but they have certain boundaries they have to operate within. They have policy guides they're following, and you should always be mindful of that context when you're thinking about cross-examining them, but also the big case law decisions. You know, I, I had a case that I did last year that was quite old for a variety of reasons unrelated to this, 
where the Fearon decision had come out about 10 months before this particular arrest. And, you know, much like in, in Adler, I was trying to get an understanding from the officer of, of what his understanding of the Fearon decision was, because it informed so much of the assumptions that he was making, like whether he was willfully, you know, not keeping up on case law, whether he was disregarding new standards he was aware of. And his answers were incredibly illuminating uh, because it did show to me that sort of a, a disregard for keeping up with the state of the law that I was able to turn into an argument that you know this officer is not operating in good faith because he's not keeping up with the obligations that he he has. He's not letting, he's not becoming informed. I'm not asking him to be aware of, you know, some superior court decision from wherever that he didn't keep up with every week, but this is a huge sea change mm -hmm. case at the Supreme Court of Canada. And he, he, he knew he'd heard of it, but he hadn't bothered to look into it, which I just think is, falls well below the standard of what we expect from a reasonable, in this case, you know, detective in Toronto police. Um, and I, I think more generally for crossing officers, some of the other best advice that I've received and things that I always try to keep in mind is unpacking every assumption that goes into a police decision. This is particularly important in the context of warrants. How, how did the officer come to believe that he could conclude this from fact X? Or you know, what kind of assumptions have to be hard baked into his belief that this looked like a drug deal or that was a this? Uh, and sometimes by trying to put yourself in the shoes of the officer and understand how he reached that conclusion or how she thought that this was a reasonable inference that could be drawn from this, or if it was a reasonable inference, um, you learn a lot about the motivations of the officer. And that's always an area ripe for cross-examination, I think, if you can get them to eventually reveal those assumptions and unpack those assumptions, uh, preferably in front of the trial judge. So yeah, just never over, you know, turning over every stone in pursuit of your theory. And that theory may be just understanding this officer's shortcomings or the, you know, the bias that infects their decision-making, anything yeah. like that. So, you know, I, I think it's good to see cases like Adler coming out that help us equip ourselves to ask those kinds of questions and to pursue those lines of cross when we're, we're getting into it with officers. Well, great advice, Lisa. And, um, you know, I think credit to trial counsel and Adler who uh, put very clearly on the record the, the questions that they wanted to ask that they were prohibited from asking, which created a record from which Gerald was able to make his pitch to the Court of Appeal. And I know I've been in those shoes where the trial judge is telling you you can't do the thing you want to do, and it, it's massively uncomfortable. Uh, but, you know, that that's the, that's what you have to do in the in service of your client is put it, put it on the record so that appellate counsel can pick it up. To that end, you know, what, what advice do you have for people about creating a good record? Because obviously, you know, put it all on the record is the advice we always hear. But how do you toe that line between not having the judge hate your guts when you start talking to the record and clearly you're talking above their head to the Court of Appeal uh, and also making sure that you put everything you need to on the record? Yeah, I think I think that's that is a balance that is struck more and more with experience. And sometimes you can, with experience, get a read on a trial judge that, you know, the reason uh, they are asking you to move on in your cross-examination is because you have made the point and they've got your point and you've effectively won the point and it's time to move on. And sometimes you're being prohibited from advancing the interest of your client in a way that 
that is important for appellate review. And so it's trying to figure out where, where you are. Are you, uh, is the judge with you or is the judge against you? And that requires, I think, experience and, and some sensitivity to develop. And so a counsel out there shouldn't, shouldn't uh, feel badly if they make the wrong uh, call. I think it, it takes a while to, to, de to develop. Of course, the safest call is to just very politely um, uh, set it out. You know, Your Honor, uh, I want to set out the, the areas I planned in my cross-examination that I've been prohibited from pursuing. They are and itemize them. Um, so that it's just crystal clear for the record, you're being, um, you know, sweet as pie, uh, but very clear. And do you ever worry when you're doing that, especially in sometimes when, I think oftentimes, especially in long trials, counsel will be asked to identify legal issues that they expect are going to come up the following day or whatever, especially in a jury trial, because trial judges like to stay ahead of these things. Do you ever worry about letting too much of your cross-examination strategy out of the bag in front of the Crown and the judge? If you're asked to give the questions in advance of asking them, things like that, which I've, you see sometimes in discrete areas where counsel's being asked to be very careful in front of the jury. Um, you know, how do you navigate that territory and when do you push back on those requests from trial judges? I, I can't say that I've had uh, an opportunity to push back. In fact, I think I, I've often proposed <laughs> that that I that I vet my questions in advance with with a trial judge on a sticky issue, and you know I, I certainly will do that um, in the context of preliminary hearings. Oh, do you remember those? Do you remember prelims? Uh, <laughs> uh, where you know uh, I was. It, trying to lay a foundation, for example, in a 278 application, uh, I, I will very often at the beginning of a break, um, uh, coming back from a break, set out the questions in advance so that everyone knows uh, my plan and, and we don't get um, sidetracked. And so I, I, I see it as really a way to maintain my, mon my, my momentum in a cross and, mm -hmm. um, and that's really important to me. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think part of it is kind of putting your ego to the side and, uh, remembering that the, the trial judge does control the process and, um, and to really be focusing on the witness. Cause that's really what you care about is that you don't get derailed with the witness in the box. Yeah. That's great advice because you don't, you don't want to be stopped partway through and with an objection that then takes you totally off your plan. A big thanks again to Gerald Chan for joining us today. Tune in next time to hear from Harpreet Saini on the challenges of balancing a criminal defense practice with parenting, and Michael Lacey, a partner at Browdy Thorning LLP and former president of the Criminal Lawyers Association, as he talks to us about the status of litigation to challenge various provisions of Bill C-75. Hope you can join us then. The Lawyer's Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network directed and published by Danan Hawes, and marketing by Jordan Bloom. My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Emond Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like The Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our Emond exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students. <laughs>